All right. Thank you so much. And uh, what Calvin was sharing is actually one of those memories that is completely etched in my mind and my, my wife's mind as well. And uh, it was uh, it was pretty pretty scary, but as it turned out, that that um, you know God is faithful. He's taken care of our, our kids and our family through all the years, and we have so many good memories of that time as well. And, and before I get started, I um, I wanted to since this is the last time I'm going to be speaking, I wanted to make sure I didn't forget to to say a few thanks, and then I'll jump into my message. Um, but I wanted to thank. All of you, church, for being so gracious to my wife and, and me um, in our time here. And I didn't get a chance to meet everyone, but got a chance to connect with some old friends and meet some new ones as well. And I want to thank the people who have been here for a long time. Um, there is a good handful of people who were here when, when we were here. And I know that means you love your church. And the, as, as a pastor, we know that, I mean, sometimes people put all this pressure or weight on pastors, but we know uh, that the, the, the strength of the church really is in all of you, all, all the people. And the fact that you have been here for so long shows that your heart for Christian Layman Church and for the Lord as well. And uh, finally, I want to thank Calvin for inviting me. And as, as a pastor here, I think he's been, I, have you been here longer than any pastor? So he, so that's, that's saying a lot. And, and yeah, so thank you, Calvin, that um, when a few years ago, our church celebrated our 20th anniversary, and I just kind of reflected on that, and I said, I've never been at a church before where a pastor had been there 20 years, and that it, it, for a, a pastor to stay that long means that they really love the people. I mean, they're definitely not doing it for the money or anything like that, but it's because they love the people. And additionally to that, um, when I was here, uh, that I, I'm sure I caused him a lot of problems because I was some young, inexperienced, uh, not uh, just green, wet behind the ears, and there was different challenges, but he was all super gracious to me. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Calvin. And with that, I want to jump in. I was thinking about the messages I, um, I've given and, and the, the one we talked about, the throne and the stump. And this is going to be kind of, it'll be a little bit different, but I was trying to imagine how they are connected. A little behind the scenes thing is a lot of times when retreat speakers come that they will get some old sermons, and they'll and I had I had given some suggestions to Calvin, and he had uh, said, oh, you know, these ones sound pretty good, but they were like from a little bit different different sermon series. But um, the way that I think it's connected is that when you and as I was talking to people, almost everyone told me that they can relate to having some stump in their life, some difficult time, and if you are going to process the your challenges and stump times in your life uh, you really need to spend some time with the Lord I mean, if you are trying to do it on your own if you're super busy all the time if you never take some time to slow down it's going to be a challenge so if you were able to identify any difficult times in your life I want to encourage you to take note of what we're talking about now and this may be the practical aspect of it all that we do need to connect 
with, with the Lord, and that will help us maybe um, understand or get a different perspective or just be at peace with the, the good times as well as the bad times in, in our lives. So I'm going to be talking about um, the, the Sabbath and how important that is for all of us. Now, the last few years have been pretty challenging for, for almost everyone, and, and there was a period of time about two years ago where it seemed like the world almost stopped and people weren't going to the office, you weren't supposed to drive around, and you, you might think that if everything slows down like that, that people would start doing better. Maybe their lives would slow down, but we've seen, and maybe you've heard these statistics, that it's been really challenging for a lot of people, especially young people, that these, they call them deaths of despair from like drug abuse or suicide have, have gone up. All that to say that just because things slowed down doesn't mean that people are doing better. And as we were saying, that it may have been more of a challenge than any other time. And maybe just give you five seconds to think about that, about how, how was it for you the last couple years. Um, at the end of it all, many people actually felt more tired and more exhausted for a bunch of, of different reasons. And uh, a few decades ago, a guy named uh, Meyer Friedman, who was a, a cardiologist, he coined this term um, that he called uh, time urgency or like hurry sickness. And he was noticing that the people, as a cardiologist, the people who seemed at high risk for heart attacks were people who were just running around frantically all the time. And he said that, oops, is the, do I got my uh, clicker working here? Okay, so hurry sickness, he said, is a continuous struggle to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less time. So, and let me make a distinction between what it means to be busy and what it means to be hurried. So everyone goes through busy periods of time. So busy is like an external thing. Your circumstances can make you busy. But to be hurried is a, a state of your soul. When you're restless, when you feel like there's more and more that you have to do, you just feel hurried. So if you could think about Jesus, there were times when he was very busy, very active, but Jesus was not a hurried person. And um, one of the words that is used to describe Jesus from Dallas Willard, he said if he could, if he could describe Jesus in one word, he would call him a, a relaxed person, that he was able to do all that he had to do, and he was at peace with that. So here's just a few diagnostic things, and these are in your notes as well, and if you want to make a little check there, if any of these describe you, maybe you can see if you might have hurry sickness as well. So the first one would be irritability. So if you're irritable, if you get mad or frustrated or annoyed just too easily, that is not a good sign. You are restless when you actually try to slow down and, and, and rest, that it's really hard for you to do that. And one of the things I've noticed that even when people sit down, 
people just have to go and look at their phones. It's like you still have to do something. There's some restlessness in there. And I won't ask how many people up here at a retreat had to, in some quiet time, had to take out your phone and just check on whatever, even though you know it wasn't that important. But that might be a, um, a, a signal of some restlessness there. Uh, emotional numbness that you don't have the capacity to feel other, another's pain or maybe even your own pain. And we've seen that with different types of you know, substance abuse or alcohol abuse that, abuse, that people just are emotionally numb. Um, out of order priorities, you feel disconnected from your sense of identity and calling. Maybe you get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent and not have the chance to think about what is really important. Lack of care for your body, that you don't have the time for really the the basic uh, necessities, the sleep, exercise, eating healthy food, sense of margin in your life, escapist behaviors, that you may be overeating, over-drinking, binge-watching a bunch of Netflix, looking at porn, just something to escape whatever it is that you might not even be able to identify. Isolation, that you feel disconnected from God, others, and even your own soul. And, I mean, you can feel disconnected in a crowd. You can feel isolated even in the midst of a, a bunch of other people, and maybe that even makes it worse because you feel like, I shouldn't be isolated because there's all these people around. But that might be a symptom of hurry sickness. Now, a psychologist from, from Berkeley in the 70s was talking about, uh, was, was identifying this idea of, of burnout. What does it mean to, to burn out and what are the symptoms of burnout? And um, she said that there were three components. The first would be just exhaustion, that you are physically and emotionally uh, spent, that you have been under stress for too long, and the last few years just have been almost like the perfect storm of all that. There were the, the elections, there was COVID, there's racial tension. Maybe some of you had to be homeschooling your kids and you've never done that before. It was just so much stuff going on. The second thing would be uh, cynicism, that instead of trying to do your best, you just do whatever you have to do to get by. Um, what can I do to keep my job? What do I do to to maintain the status quo. I mean, maybe even during, during the, the lockdown there, people even stopped dressing the bottom half of their, their clothes, stuff like that. I mean, it's just what do I have to do to get by the bare minimum? And then finally would be uh, blame, blame, that you just blame other people or you blame yourself. What is wrong? What is wrong with me? Why am I not good at this? It might be in your work or life or faith. Why can't I handle this? What is wrong with me? So this, uh, this burnout was, was identified as kind of a psychological state in, in the, in the mid-70s. And um, they made a distinction between being exhausted and being burnt out. So um, being exhausted means that you've kind of gone to the point where you can't really do anymore and then burned out is when you got to that point and you just keep on going and going and going for weeks or months or, or years. And at some point, it just, you just break. 
You can't go any further. So burnout is, is like when your soul, that sacred part of you on the inside, can't really, can't really bear the weight of all the things that are going on in your life. And there's a bunch of different reasons for that, but maybe one reason I'll talk about briefly is that there is this uh, myth of progress or the idea that things should always get better so that we believe, and I think in our 21st century, we kind of buy into this, that, well, things should always get better. We should be able to, to address any virus that comes out. The standard of living should always go, out, go up. I should be able to get a bigger house and a better car. My kids should be able to go to better schools, and their standard of living should go up, and that, that things should always get better. And, and if you think things should always get better, like tomorrow's going to be a, a better day, then, then you're just like looking toward tomorrow. So you see the problems, you see the challenges that you have, and you say, because things are going to get better, if, if I can just make it to the next day, then if, or if I can make it to my next vacation, or if I can make it to this next stage, then things are going to get better. But it, but it, it doesn't, you know, the myth of progress is called that because it's really a myth that the, the same things that have afflicted the, the human soul are still the same. I mean, that's why we can read the Bible from thousands of years ago, and there are truths in there that still address our current situation because really the most important things haven't changed. We're still broken, sinful people who need a Savior, and, uh, but if we think that you know, things are going to get better all the time, then we might buy into this myth of progress. So we're looking forward to the future. Just a few fun facts here that... In 1967, the, the, the U.S. Senate actually made the subcommittee to, to address, they, they thought, they bought into the myth of progress, so they said, we're getting so more of, uh, efficient with everything that the, pro- the challenge is going to be that people are going to have too much free time because they're going to be able to do the same amount of stuff in a lot less time. So they, they, in 1967, they made a forecast that by 1985, the average American would work 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year because we would be so efficient. But that's not what happened, as everyone knows. That what we did was we traded any extra time that we might have had to just work more and more. And we felt like we needed more money, we needed more things, and we just kept on getting on this hamster wheel here. And the economy went up, the standard of living went up, but people's quality of life did not go up at all. In fact, if, if anything, it just became more and more stressful. So because of that, people have just... we. People are physically exhausted and they are spiritually numb as well. And if you stay in that state for too long, I mean, you just become, you become calloused. You're, you're not able to hear the voice of the Lord. You're not able to sit quietly. It's not the life that God wants for, for you. So, having said that all up here, that, that the Bible addresses this and it, it talks about is there... Is there a healthy way to live? Is there a, a rhythm of life that we should have? And in Hebrews, the author writes this. He says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A Sabbath rest. And I'll be defining this in, in a moment. It's not, just, it's not just like a vacation rest. It's not, not you know, vacation means to vacate. Um, 
it's not just sitting there, you know, binge watching TV, but it's something different. It's actually like a rest. And the word Sabbath means to to cease or desist. And in the book of Genesis, we see that God himself ceased, desisted, uh, uh, had a Sabbath rest. So from the creation account here in Genesis, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of created that he had done. I, I, I love this, that God made a day, he made time holy. And that's, this is one of the great learnings I got when I was studying through this, that, that time, time is holy, that God actually made time holy. It's interesting that, uh, uh, that rabbis will really study through like every you know, verse and jot and tittle of the Bible. And there's a, a principle that they have that's called the, the principle of, of first mention. So it means that whenever a, a concept or a word is used the first time, that it's, it, it, it's very informative of, of what it means and how are you to look at that. So the first time the word holy, which is used many, many times throughout the scriptures, is used is that passage I just read, that God made time holy. And it's interesting that, um, like in other religions, that they'll make like places holy, like a, a holy mountain or, or a holy place to worship. But the first time that the word holy is used in the Bible is there, and, and it's God saying that that there is time that is holy, that, that, that time is holy. And I think we get the sense of it if we actually slow down and think about it, that even though we're so busy and we run around doing stuff, that when you think about the, the precious gift of, of time, that it is, it, it is holy and it is sacred. Um, when I, we're, we're almost empty nesters, in just a few months, our youngest will be heading off to uh, college most probably. And uh, when we look around and, and my wife and I see all the, all the parents with, with young kids and kind of scrambling around trying to pick them up and, and they seem so busy and sometimes frazzled. And I know when we were in that, that, that state that we always thought, man, when, when we get to that next time when we don't have to do this, um, we're going we're gonna to feel so good. And that time comes before you know it, and your kids are you're empty nesters, and you think, oh, man, that was such a great time. Just one other story about that. I mean, I remember we used to take our, uh, my daughter, she, she played club soccer, so we drove around, like, like, everywhere, all over Southern California to go to these tournaments and uh, had other kids in sports, too. And it was just, you know, it was tiring, and I was waiting for the time that that was over. And then I remember when she played her last game, and I said, oh, that was it. That was the last game. That time was, was so, it, it seemed so short. And I remember the next soccer season, as I drive to church, there's this big soccer field where all these little kids play, the, the, like their first leagues. And I drove past, and I saw all these little kids running around on the soccer field. And I just was like, so, I don't know, melancholy or wistful. I said, oh, man, I remember that time. I wish... I wish I appreciated it a little bit more at that time. All that, all that to say, and maybe, maybe it's impossible to do that, but that time is, is a gift. The time that you have with loved ones, I mean, that is a gift, and it's, it's, it's just holy. Um, Abraham Heschel, who's a Jewish scholar, 
called the Sabbath, and he has a, a great book called The Sabbath, and he called the Sabbath a, a cathedral in time. And he wrote, um, the Sabbath is to time what the tabernacle and temple are to space. Um, so he calls it so that there are, there's a, a holy place in the t- tabernacle or the temple, but that in that same way, and if you think about it, time is, you know, you can't, you can't see time as a physical thing. You can make places holy because they're, you know, they're, they exist in, in our dimensions, but time is like whatever the fourth dimension. So, so that when God says the Sabbath is holy, he's, he's making holy, uh, time holy, and that is like a cathedral in time. Um, and in the Old Testament, when they are talking about this, this idea of rest, that there's kind of two parts of this rest. There's the, the, the Sabbath rest, which is the rest from our routine labors. So on the seventh day, people were to not work. But there's also this, this promise of, of rest, um, promise of rest from all the enemies or wandering around in, in the wilderness or futility. And um, in the New Testament, these ideas kind of come together um, in, in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, it um, says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to, your, to the Lord your God. And God is saying that as um, the nation is leaving Egypt, that, that my, my presence will go with you. And you remember that as you are honoring the Sabbath. And here's, here's something that you'll see, too, that, that this rest, this rest is always to, is connected to God's presence. So it's not simply just a rest where you're not doing stuff, but you are also to remember that as you're resting, that, that God is present with you. Wherever you go, whether you're wandering through the, di- the wilderness or wherever you're going, that, that um, as you rest, remember that, that God is present with you. And still, I mean, because of sin, because of all these, the, the tribulations of the world, that rest is a little bit elusive, and that fatigue always seems to find us. And then when Jesus comes... He says this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. People who are just, just, I mean, just tired and exhausted and they don't have that promise of rest. He says, um, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Jesus here is connecting those ideas too, that as you rest, that you are resting um, because Jesus is with you. That is part of what it means to rest. So that word rest, it's really like a, a pregnant word. You know, rest from our labors, rest for our souls, rest from our enemies. Um, Psalm 23, we are, are resting and, and, and um, God as the shepherd restores our souls. Um, if you were to look at that verse again, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
So you should know, people of God, that there is a Sabbath rest for you, that it's, it's built into the, the fabric of creation, and it's really helpful when, that, when, when we observe it. And it's not supposed to be some legalism thing. Um, it's interesting. We were in Israel, and if you go there, there the, if you're Jewish, at least observant Jew, that you are very uh, aware of all the Sabbath, the, the Sabbath laws, and they've kind of parsed everything down about what you can and cannot do, and they have these elevators. So on the Sabbath, they say, oh, well, it's, it's work to push an elevator button. So the elevators on the Sabbath actually stop at every floor so you don't have to push the button because that would be work. I mean, that might be getting a little bit legalistic about it. Um, and the idea is that, that God created the, the Sabbath for us, that it's built into the, the rhythm of creation. Here's another fun fact. Have, have you ever heard of a group called uh, the Seventh-day Adventists? Uh, well, here's, here's, a, here's a fun fact about them, is that they live 10 years longer on average than the rest of the population. And part of it, I think, I mean, they're very, they're very uh, um, concerned about health, which maybe you've heard as well, but um, that they also are, are very, they observe the Sabbath. So they have a, a rhythm of rest built into their lives. And if you were to do that and make that part of your lives, um, it, it's, it's a blessing um, because that's just part of the, the fabric of, of life. And they've done some studies about these areas. There's a few areas where they've, um, they've noticed that there are a, a super high percentage of people who live to like 100 years old. There's like Okinawa. There's some place in um, the Mediterranean. And there's a Seventh-day Adventist community in Loma Linda where there's a whole bunch of people who live to 100 years old. And part of it, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons, but part of it, I believe, is because they are just living consistently with God's pattern of, of, of uh, creation. One more, one more fun fact, that sometimes people have tried to really break this rhythm. So, so um, back in the 18th century, France tried to increase productivity and, and make a 10-day work week. So you'd work for 10 days, and then you'd get a day off. And then what happened was they found out that there was more suicide uh, people burned out, and there was, and all the production decreased. So you might think, well, if you're working 10, 10 days, that it should be more effective. But, but because that isn't really with the God-intended rhythm, that people were not as productive. Um, the Soviets tried a five-day work week, and then they tried a six-day work week, and then they ended up back on a seventh-day work week. One last thing. In 1974, um, when they put up Skylab, that they scheduled all those astronauts because the time was so precious there. So they had an 84-day mission, and they didn't schedule any days off at all. And then, like, uh, in the middle of it all, the, the colonel who was in charge just said, we need a day off, and then uh, NASA wouldn't give them a day off, and then they just went on strike because they couldn't, <laughs> they, they, they couldn't do it. But it's kind of a reflection of, of God's creation. So when we're keeping with that, that it is uh, good and healthy. So what is the purpose? What's the purpose of, of the Sabbath? I mean, it is, it is one of the Ten Commandments, but it's, it's interesting that it's like the only commandment that people are kind of proud about breaking. 
So, you know, they say, oh, I'm working so hard. I never get any rest, as if they're proud of it. I mean, no one breaks, you know. Oh, I'm so, you know, I, I, I committed so much adultery or I murdered so many people. I mean, nobody says that because, you know, that you can't say that. But, everyone, but people will say, you know, I work so hard and I'm so tired all the time. And, you know, that's not something to be proud of. It just shows kind of our upside-down value system here. So one of the purposes of Sabbath is that the Sabbath, the Sabbath restores you. It's about restoration. It's interesting that when you look through Jesus, the life of Jesus and he goes around and doing miracles and healing people, many of his miracles are on the Sabbath. And part of that, I think, is because it's a reflection that, that the Sabbath is supposed to bring you wholeness and bring you health. And he was, you know, Jesus was purposeful with everything that he did. So that when you are observing a time of rest, that it, it restores you. And, and that makes a lot of sense to us. Um, I think that the problem is, is if we, if we have a kind of a skewed idea of what really restores us. So we just, um, if you go on vacation and you're super busy all the time and you say, oh, I need a vacation after, after my vacation. I mean, that wasn't restorative. You might have a, a spa day or veg all the time or something like that. I mean, those, there, there may be a place for that, but if, it, if it's not, um, if, if we don't have the right, the right perspective of it, that it is really not helpful at all. Um, Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man and not the man, not man for the Sabbath. That the, the purpose of it is that it is a blessing for those who observe it. It's not for, as I was talking about in Israel, how you have to meet all the minutia of the law. I mean, that's the other way around, that the purpose of it is to be restorative. So to have some rhythm of rest, and it's, you know, for the Seventh-day Adventists, they do it on Saturday, which is their Sabbath. A lot of people might choose Sunday. For, for me as a pastor, Sunday's kind of a work day, so uh, Monday might be the day that we have some rest. Um, and we can't wait until we get all our work done. I mean, sometimes you feel like, well, I still, got, I still have more things to do. And, you know, if you wait till you have everything that you need to get done, done before you have a Sabbath, uh, you probably will never, never get one. So the Sabbath kind of helps us resist the uh, artificial urgencies of the day. I, I'm, I'm resisting this myth of progress. And it, it restores us really to our, our true identity as, as children of God. Um, when the Ten Commandments are given, they're given a couple times. And one of the times, I think in Deuteronomy, it, it links the Sabbath to you observe the Sabbath because you're no longer a slave in Egypt. Like when you were a slave, you had to do what someone else told you so you could never rest. But now you're not a slave, so you don't have to do that. Now, we don't have a pharaoh or a, or a taskmaster who who's tells us you have to do all these things, but I think we have a lot of internal pharaohs, right? It might not be this other, uh, it might not be a pharaoh who's telling us to do things, but maybe our, our own compulsions, our, our own baggage tells us, I can, I can never rest. I just have to keep on working and working and working. And part of that is, is when we're telling ourselves, you know what? If I stop producing, then I'm not as valuable. If I don't do this or do that, I'm not as valuable. But you need to know whatever you produce, I mean, how much or a little, 
it is you are still a son or daughter of God. Your, your value is not, is not based on how much you produce. So when you can take a break and a rest, you're, you're, you're kind of acknowledging that in a way. I, you know, I'm still a child of God no matter what I do, no matter what I produce. So it's just so good to be able to do that and to let it go. And that's another reason why we do that. So just, you know, take, take a, a break. Do something that is restorative to you. Walk out in nature, spend time with a loved one, um, have a good cup of coffee, whatever it is. Something that restores you, that, that you can do that. Also, the Sabbath reforms you, re- reform. It's like transforms you. And at the beginning, if anyone has tried to do this after being so busy for a super long time, this is, this is when you have that restlessness. It's almost like detoxing from a drug. This is why when you see a lot of our young people and even our old people, when they're just sitting there, they just can't sit there by themselves. They have to go to their phone or something to keep themselves um, busy. Um, so it's, it's very, it's difficult. It's like detoxing from a drug. It's that, you know, the, the FOMO, the fear of missing out. What am I missing out uh, um, from? And when we do take that rest, that it's, it can be painful at first. It can be difficult. And it can be the place that we meet Christ as well. Dallas Willard wrote, the normal course of day to day Human interactions lock us into patterns of feeling, thought, and action that are geared to a world set against God. So just by being busy all the time, that, that we don't even realize it. You know, the world squeeze you into, into its mold, and that's what happens. And sometimes we need to take a step back to get a little bit of uh, distance and objectivity about that. Um, Andy Crouch writes, there is perhaps no single thing that could better help us recover Jesus' lordship in our frantic, power-hungry world than to allow him to be the lord of our rest as well as our work. That as the community of Christ followers actually learn how to work, but also learn how to rest, that that is a testimony to the world. It's a testimony that, once again, your value is not based on your productivity, that you can rest and and still be at peace, that it will be a testimony. And the, the world is looking, I mean, they're looking for individuals, but they're also looking for a community of people who know uh, and practice this. And when I was uh, giving this message before at my church, it was part of a series that we we're talking about becoming a certain type of community. So although these, you might look at this as an individual practice, but it's also something that as a community that you are being reformed and transformed together. And as you can encourage each other and support each other, and that as you are a community of people that are not anxious, that you're not anxious presence, that as people see that and they're invited in and participated in that, I mean, that will be... That will be Countercultural, that would be revolutionary. That the power that God could use through a whole community is so much more than any one one individual. So I want to encourage you as a community here. Let me wrap up. I'm almost done here. Um, you know, in Genesis one and two, that that um, God blessed three things: that God blessed man, animals, and the Sabbath. And when he's saying, you know, he's blessing them, he's saying, be fruitful and multiply. And part of that is saying that, that, that 
those things that were blessed, the man and animal, have the, the power to give life, the power to create. And in the same way, the Sabbath is blessed because it has the power to give life. It has the power to, to create within you. It has that life-giving ability. Um, so it's something that is very powerful. You know, when we, when we observe Sabbath, part of what we're also saying is, you know what, I'm not God. I know a lot of us pastors feel like we can never take a break because we feel like things are going to fall apart or something. But part of releasing and, and taking a break or taking a sabbatical is to say, you know what, I'm not God. God is in control no matter what, and it doesn't rise and fall on all my efforts. And when you do that and it's okay, then you trust God more. It's like, you know, God took care of it, and it's going to be okay. And even if things don't go exactly the same way, it's still okay because God is still on the throne. And you know what? There's one God, and it's totally not me. Um, You are building a type of, of life. You are, are kind of, in the ways that you live your life, as you go down from this mountain, you'll be off the mountaintop, and you are constructing a life, and it determines the type of person that you will become and the type of relationship that you have with God and others. And this is it's like the best time to start instituting some of these these things So just to be super practical, if you've never really thought about taking a Sabbath, you know, taking one day a week may seem a little bit uh, intimidating. So just start wherever you are right now. That's the only place that you can start. So if it's one hour in a week, I mean, that's better than zero hours. And to be intentional and probably scheduled and focused, and it's good to be talking with some other people about that. If, it's, if you've done that before, four hours or, you know, working up to a little bit more than that. But it, as you do it, um, you will, you'll find that it is, is really life-giving. And it's been something I've been doing uh, on Mondays for a long time, and I, I, I look forward to it. I, I really, really do. And it's a time that I spend with Teresa, and we go on this walk on this trail almost every Monday that, that we can. And it's just really, really life-giving. So I look forward to that, and I think it's part of what has helped keep me sane over the last couple of years. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes um, we are at some level afraid of doing this because we're afraid of the, the silence. We're afraid, and this is why people keep busy a lot. They're afraid of kind of that little voice that they're going to hear or maybe, maybe the baggage that they have, and it's, it's really, really difficult but that path of transformation has to do with dealing with a lot of those, a lot of those things. Um, you know, when Jesus finished his work on the cross and he said it was done, on, on Saturday he rested in a dark tomb. And that led to the, the glory of Easter. And that he rose from the dead, demonstrating his power over sin and death. So, so God's work of uh, redemption and recreation, you know, from Friday to Sunday is connected by Saturday, by holy rest, so that redemption, rest, and recreation and regeneration, uh, that's no, it's no accident there. So when God is doing that work in us, that there is that part of holy rest. And sometimes you are, we're afraid of what will happen when we stop and have that rest, but just as we saw on the cross and in the tomb and on Easter Sunday, that in that rest, that 
you will find Jesus there. There is no place that you can go apart from him. And when you rest, uh, I believe that you will find him there. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we live in a, a busy, busy world, and there are so many pressures, and we are constantly being squeezed into the, 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 the mold here. And Lord, we want to stand against that. We, we want to take a step back. And you've promised us in your word that as we, we rest, that you, will, you are there with us. And it is your desire that uh, we can be reformed and rejuvenated and that in our own lives and in our community that we would give glory to you, that it would be transforming and it would be wonderful. Lord, I pray in a very practical way for each person here that they would uh, be able to find some time um, every week that they could spend with you and that you would meet them there. Thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.